Hello, it's Wednesday, November the 10th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show, coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. The government insists it's right to, in- to bring in a compulsory COVID vaccine policy for NHS staff, but not until the end of March. We're talking about Sir Geoffrey Cox, the former Attorney General, who's overseas. Is he working in another tax haven for vast amounts of money? Thousands of workers earning more than £50,000 a year are going to be entitled to universal credit for the first time. But will they claim it? But first, Prince Harry says that well-known term, Megxit, he says it's sexist. I thought it was just describing the fact he and she have left for their new life in the United States. Prince Harry says the term Megxit to describe the decision by him and his wife to quit their royal duties is misogynistic. Harry was speaking by video on a panel organised by US technology magazine Wired. He said, maybe people know this and maybe they don't, but the term Megxit was was or is a misogynistic term and it was created by a troll. I'm joined now by Richard Fitzwilliams, who's a royal commentator and former editor of International Who's Who. Richard, um, how, did he, how does he know it's misogynistic? I mean, what basis has he got for making that claim? Well, as far as I can see, uh, the basis for making the claim would be that, of course, it is supposed to symbolize the break with the royal family, the stepping down, and Mexit identifies it with her, and indeed seems to make me to make perfect sense, because of course on Oprah he said that it was she who led him to find freedom, that in fact the likes of Charles and William are trapped, and from that point of view you can definitely see that she is the, the instigator, so to speak, in the opinion I think of most people. It's interesting that this word, because he, I mean it's, it's in the English language now, it's in the Collins Dictionary, and it was one of the words of the year uh, last year. And according to the Times, it's interesting that it was, Harry said it was first used by a troll. Well, according to the Times, it was first used in 2019. Newspapers used it to refer to staff leaving the Duchess's household, echoes of the bullying uh, saga, which uh, reportedly uh, was linked to Meghan and indeed hasn't been solved. And then, of course, after January the 8th, the intention to step back, which led to them stepping down but uh, it immediately caught on because of its echoes of brexit of course yeah and that's very interesting isn't it that actually it the the the, the use of the word predated their departure from these shores it was to do with the uh, ex- exodus of staff from their royal employment he also says he thinks the british press has been interacting with hateful twitter accounts well i work for the british press i've never interacted with a hateful twitter account i don't know which twitter accounts he's talking about there is a report out which takes a certain number of accounts which are what it considers as hate accounts and right. is attempting to link them with royal commentators and with journalists. Uh, the point being, of course, that very often when you might interact with an account or follow it, you wouldn't necessarily know that it is undesirable. And obviously it's up to Twitter, I would have thought, to ensure that such accounts are swept away. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a, a parade, as we know, unfortunately, on Twitter, which they simply cannot monitor of undesirable material. But to blame uh, journalists, it seems to be wrong, unless it's 
they have knowledgeably done this, it seems to me the appropriate uh, source to blame would be Twitter. And Harry, oddly enough, and this is quite extraordinary, claims to have told the head of Twitter uh, yeah. that um, I mean, he foresaw the um, ghastly attack on the Capitol, uh, which uh, that is quite extraordinary. Perhaps he can back it up with an email, but certainly it's a pity others didn't have uh, similar second sight. Yes, Mystic Harry, we didn't know about that, did we? He also says again, uh, Richard, I mean, Princess Diana is still hugely popular in the United States, as she is, of course, in Britain. He said that misinformation is a global humanitarian crisis. I know the story too well. I lost my mother to this self-manufactured rabidness. What word that mean? What word that is? And I'm obviously, I'm determined not to lose my mother to my children to the same thing. He seems to be saying again that that, that, that the Duchess of Sussex is being persecuted by the British media, which is difficult when she lives in the United States, and we rarely write about her these days, which is probably part of the problem. I think one of the tragedies is that he is still haunted by his mother's death. I think that this is a subject which uh, he's clearly emotionally vulnerable and obviously, and for clear reasons, feels tremendously strongly about it. I mean, he has said, it wasn't that long ago, that every time he heard the click of a camera, it brought back visions of what had happened at that terrible occasion when uh, Diana was, uh, was pursued by paparazzi. And of course, as drunk and a speeding driver on drink who was drunk on drugs um, was responsible together with those who were pursuing it is a terrible episode it will clearly never be erased from his mind what we do have to realize is of course that he and Megan and I mean no disrespect there's no doubt that they seek publicity now precisely for what reason is still unclear when it comes to the future it may well uh, mean that Megan who's made a, a perfectly um, I mean, the, the issue of paid parental leave, I totally support America, one of the very few countries that doesn't have it. She has gone into the cold calling politicians and, and calling for this uh, in the United States. Um, it seems admirable to me, but I mean, whether or not this will lead on a political career, I mean, as an activist, someone is very articulate, it makes perfect sense. What we don't know is how the Americans, for example, would tend to respond if she continues to use her title, and also how they would respond and her opponents in the future, if she does take this line, it would be very interesting to see. Uh, whether or not some um, inaccuracies on, in their interview on Oprah, which I thought was so destructive, come back to haunt them. Very interesting, Richard, indeed, when we'll be following that, of course. That's Richard Fitzwilliam, the Royal Commentator and former editor of International Who's Who. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free and in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So thousands of workers who are earning more than £50,000 a year will be entitled to universal credit for the first time. The Chancellor Rishi Sunak's welfare shake-up at the budget means more middle-class single parents can claim the benefit with an extra 600,000 families entitled to receive it. I'm joined now by Tom Walters, who's Senior Research Economist at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Tom, um, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Because there was a huge political row when the government uh, removed the temporary £20 increase in universal credit, which was brought in at the start of the lockdown. 
And now we hear that workers earning more than 50000 a year can also get universal credit. Is that what the benefit was intended for? Well, it's, it's worth emphasising that this reform essentially helps pretty much any family on universal credit who's in work. And so that includes those who are certainly on a lot less than £50,000. But it does mean that for some kinds of families, single earners, as you said, um, and renting families in particular, that they can earn as much as 50000 or sometimes even a bit more and still be entitled to um, a bit of universal credit. And I think in terms of whether it was what the, the, the benefit was for, it seems to me like the government's judgment seems to be that they don't want to too strongly disincentivize those on benefits to work a bit more. And so what they're saying is we're going to withdraw your universal credit a little bit more slowly as you increase your earnings. Um, now, that, that, that's not that, that, what that's going to mean is um, that for some families, um, they need to earn potentially quite a lot before they lose their universal credit entitlement entirely. And, and that's because they, they, the government changed the taper in, in the uh, budget. Is that right, Tom? That's right, yeah. So it's now the case that for every um, pound you earn after tax, you lose 55p of universal credit. It used to be you lost 63p. And so as you earn more, you get to keep a little bit more of your universal credit than you did previously. And the consequence of that, the, the logical consequence of that is people who are on higher levels of earnings will um, uh, become entitled to UC. How do you regard universal credit? Do you think it's because it was a very contentious tax, uh, Ian Duncan Smith's slaved uh, uh, blood, sweat and tears when he was working pension secretary to get the benefit in place. Do you think it's working well now? I think there's a couple of things certainly to be said in its favour. And one thing actually in, in, in the course of the last 18 months, when the pandemic hit, there were a huge number of applications to universal credit. I think it was more than a million over a two-week period at one point. And uh, the system was able to, to keep functioning um, and people were able to get their benefits, which is certainly something to, uh, to, be, to be thankful for. Um, probably the thing that's caused the most controversy is the, the so-called five-week wait, which wasn't present under the old benefit system. So now when you apply for universal credit for the first time, you, you usually have to wait five weeks um, before you get your first payment. And that can obviously be difficult for, for families that don't have much in the way of savings to fall back on. So that seems to me to be where quite a lot of the, the negative stories have, have come from and, and where um, certainly some of the biggest difficulty with the benefit lies. And, and, and just finally, Tom, on, on the, back to where we started this uh, item, the 50,000 people earning 50, more than £50,000 a year, will they know they're entitled perhaps to universal credit? Do they get, does an, a letter automatically arrive on the doormat or do they have to inquire themselves? How does it work? Yeah, a letter certainly doesn't arrive in the doormat. I think probably you're right that in many cases, some of these families might think of themselves as being, you know, reasonably well off and, and not expect to be entitled uh, to universal credit and so might not check. But um, yeah, it, for any family to find out whether or not they're entitled to UC, they do need to go and have a look. I think the government have got a calculator on their website you can, uh, you can use. Um, and so we'll have to see about whether or not some of these families do in fact actually go and claim what they're entitled to. Very interesting. Um, of course, of course, some families, I suspect, Tom, may be just a bit too proud. I'm earning more than 50,000 a year. Why do I need benefits? You can hear, just hear some people saying that, I imagine. Uh, indeed, yeah. I, I, think, I think you could imagine something exactly like that happening. Yeah. All right, that's Tom Waters. He's a senior research economist at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. Thanks for joining us. 
So the Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, has defended what he describes as the government's perfectly reasonable compulsory COVID vaccine policy for NHS staff. But official estimates show it will convince only one in six unvaccinated workers to come forward and therefore around 70,000 could leave the sector when the edict comes in at the end of March next year. I'm joined now by Alan Lofthouse, who's the National Officer at Unison, half a million of whose members work in the NHS. Alan, most people will think, why wouldn't all NHS workers want to have the vaccine we know it's proven that it's it's much the best way to protect our health and certainly to protect people from hospitalization and even death yes so you know i think it's worth pointing out right from the beginning that we do support the vaccination program and we've we've tried uh, to encourage our members to take it up but i think you know people are still unsure and one of the problems with the mandating policy is it, it it shuts down the discussion that employers are able to have and that we can have with people who are unsure and what we're hearing really is that people feel embarrassed about asking questions about the vaccine and they don't know who to talk to and you know what they would i guess like to do is talk to their manager but many of them don't feel confident in talking to their manager so what's going to happen is these people are going to be left with this really stark choice which is to have something that they're still not sure about or to leave their jobs and with you know, current vacancy rate of about 100,000 people across the NHS. Can we really afford to lose another 70 to 80,000 staff? You know, I just, I just think it's so dangerous. But the vaccine rollout has been uh, underway for months and months and months. They've had plenty of time to find out what the what the issues are with the vaccine. Surely, Alan. Well, they've also been treating patients throughout this pandemic, haven't they? I mean, the pressures on NHS staff have been immense. And I, and, you yeah. know, I do agree with you that there has been information out there. But equally, when you go and speak to some staff, they, the information uh, hasn't been going down as far as you would possibly imagine it. You know, there's been lots of talk at high level about the vaccines. Um, but sometimes staff just haven't been getting that right information or some people are waiting to see what happens and want to make a choice at a, a later stage. And this well, how uh, much later, mandating though? I mean, policy... But how much later? I, I don't understand why they'd say, well, I'll have it in six months. Why not have it now? It doesn't take long. It's a, it's a quick injection. Uh, and uh, a couple of months later, you have your second one. And this, I think, is the problem with the mandating policy is it, it puts a hard edge into that where people aren't then able to use persuasion and encouragement tactics and it sort of forces not just NHS workers but this is coming in across the whole of health and social care and I think that's such a huge number of people that this is going to impact on so yes the, you know the news yesterday was all about um, NHS staff but actually tomorrow is this hard mm. stop date for care home yeah. staff yeah. and the, even the care home managers and care home leaders and care home forum uh, uh, leaders are talking about you know the, the damage it could do to an already unstable staffing uh, crisis. So we'll wait and see, really, I suppose, what happens. But yeah. some people are left with the really dreadful choice of, you ha- I mean, pr- probably people will leave rather than wait and, until they're dismissed by their employer. But it still brings on a, a lot of ethical issues and legal issues. Uh, of course, Sajid Javid would say, if he were here, well, we've tried persuasion, we've tried encouragement, it's not worked. So the only other way, uh, and we're giving you six months to get to, or four months to get it sorted, is to compel. And a lot of people who are going to, will, will want, if they're going into hospital, to think that NHS staff who are treating them, doctors, nurses and ciliary workers, have been double vaxxed. And you know what? That is the assumption you make. And yet I read the consultation response uh, in some detail and actually 65% of um, service users and their families don't support this policy. 
the only people who do support the policy are actually NHS managers and people um, who run services. And I think that's because it's really difficult for them to explain to staff why they should have a vaccine. So what they imagine is the easiest way is you get the government to tell them they must have it. But then the end result is you, you, you're going to end up with staffing crisis. So we're sort of stuck in this loop at the moment where it seems a perfectly logical and reasonable response. And, um, you know, the Secretary of State is standing by this. But I guess the question is, you know, when I think he's the MP for Bromsgrove, isn't he? Is he going to go into a care home on the weekend and, and help out with care because the people that should have been there have now been dismissed from their employment or can no longer work? It, uh, it, I, I, I get it. Uh, can I ask you, have you, are you jabbed? Have you been double jabbed, Alan? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, my, my previous role, I was a paramedic. So, you know, right. I, I, I'm fully behind NHS staff, but there's a principle yeah. here about freedom of choice. And yeah. I guess this just removes an element of freedom of choice. And I would love to be able to persuade more people to take the vaccine. And I just, I just think this is a, it's going to backfire in a way that I don't think the Secretary of State and others can see at the moment. But I think it, you know, one of the other risks is that it impacts in other vaccine programs, because one of our response to the uh, to the consultation was about, you know, we want to try and close down the, the kind of conspiratorial anti-vaxxer debate that's happening out there at the moment. And I worry about governments making a decision to mandate that actually that gives oxygen to that dangerous discussion, which could put people off. And actually, the best way is persuasion and encouragement. All right, that's Alan Lofthouse, who's the national officer at Unison, uh, who's got uh, the union which has half a million members working in the NHS. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. Deputy Sports Editor Tim Nichols is here with the latest sports news. So, Tim, the Premier League, another manager's gone, Aston Villa. They're after... Mr. Gerrard. They are. Uh, they got rid of uh, Dean Smith on Sunday. Uh, we, we wrote in the paper on Monday morning that, that Gerrard was the top target. Uh, the players at Villa expect the new manager, possibly Gerrard, to be in place by Monday to take right. training. He is their top target. There's, there's, He's there's, managing Glasgow Rangers. He is, and, and he, he won the title there uh, last season for Rangers, ending Celtic's bid to make it 10 in a row. So mm. he's, a, he's a real sort of hero up there amongst mm. the Rangers fans. But this is a great opportunity for him to come back to the Premier League, which, as we know, is the biggest league in the world. Yeah. Uh, Villa are a, a big club, great support, great stadium, uh, and there's a real opportunity there. I think it'll be hard to turn down for him mm. if a formal approach is made. But as I say, our information is that uh, the players at Villa expect the new man assuming it's Gerard, mm. uh, to be in place at the beginning of next week to take training. So it, things will probably move quite quickly yeah. over the next few days on that. Of course, with Rangers, he's in Europe with with, Glass, with Rangers, I suppose, is he? He, he is. But might not be with Aston Villa. He, he won't be with Aston Villa, certainly not this season and, and probably not next season. But uh, it's difficult for Scottish clubs in Europe. Right. Uh, I mean, they got to the um, UEFA Cup final back in 2008, Rangers. But it's, it's a long time since a Scottish club made a real impact in Europe. And I don't think that will necessarily come into his right. thinking I think you'll see Villa as a great opportunity to take the next step in his career we all know that he's probably going to be lined up for Liverpool one day that's his, That's where he made his of name course, he's, he's he's he of course he's a hero he's a hero on Merseyside <laughs> amongst the Liverpool fans and uh, I'm sure he'll end up there one day but I do think he probably needs a stepping stone before not yeah. that Villa should be a stepping stone because no. they're a very big club in their own right indeed now West Ham who are doing incredibly well they're in the top four a Czech billionaire's bought a big stake in the club he has he's got 27% stake Daniel Kratinsky 
He's a co-owner of a, a club in uh, in the Czech Republic, Sparta Prague. Uh, values the club about six hundred million, and it, it's just it's it's great news for West Ham mm-hmm. because you know there's going to be an in, sort of injection of cash. Uh, another voice on the board. This is an experienced, successful businessman, mm-hmm. um, and you know they're third in the league. They just beat Liverpool. They're going really really well. Four wins on the bounce. Moyes has gotten top of their uh, group in Europe, and it's really great times mm-hmm. at the Olympic Stadium for West Ham. It's great just to have a different club at the top of the table, isn't it? We it saw is. the Leicester a few years ago. We did, and, and same old, same, same old, same old most of the time. Exactly. But Manchester United having a bit of a difficult <coughs> run, and, and West Ham taking advantage. They're, they're there, you know, on merit. Very good. And finally, uh, Tim, glamping and cruise ship options for England fans going to Qatar yeah. for the World Cup. Who'd want to go there anyway? Well, that is a very good Stinking point. Stinking hot. It's going to be very hot. I'm not sure glamping is a is a, a you know attractive proposition in the Qatari desert. Um, no. You know, as someone who's been camping in Western Australia, it gets very hot very mm. early, and uh, I don't think they would. Um, I don't think many England fans are going to take them up on that uh, offer. But you know, cruise ships as sort of floating yeah. hotels, if you like. I mean, obviously, Qatar is a is a small place. Uh, there aren't that many options for fans you know mm. fans are going to descend on Qatar yeah. from all over the world yeah. and so they're obviously looking at accommodation options uh, let's see what happens with the England fans I'm not sure as many will go as they normally do I mean England are very very well supported on the road yeah. it's not the most attractive destination although oh, you know yeah. at that time of year it's obviously going to be winter so it'll be nice and warm best not go if you're gay because I think you get shot don't you I think they're going to sort of uh, you know temporarily pause uh, you know all the sort of draconian rules and laws they've right, got there because yeah. obviously it's i mean the good thing is that as it's completely corrupt world cup this one it yeah. should never have been awarded right. to qatar all the Set people and all that all the people who voted for it have yeah. basically been done yes. subsequently so yeah. it was they bid for a summer world cup uh, and it's a winter world cup it, mm. it stinks mm. but what is good is that some some nations in the in the qualification process such as germany and norway are, are starting to you know make wear t-shirts that starting to make people aware of what's going on in qatar and obviously we we know that migrant workers working on the stadiums mm. have been treated appallingly there've been plenty uh, there've been an awful lot of deaths that, mm. that go unreported and um you know i think the closer we get it would be nice to see some of the england players making a taking a bit yeah. of a stand because it you know, Qatar shouldn't have the World Cup, full mm. stop. And we know it's a repressive regime. Yeah. And, and it is, you know, while it shouldn't be going there, it is a chance for, you know, high-profile athletes to shine a light on what's going on there yeah. because that will make people sit up and yeah. take notice. And they did it in the Winter Olympics when they went to Russia. They did. Uh, and so um, they can do it again. Absolutely. Um, still don't think I'm going to go to them, actually. I don't think, I think I'm going to give it a miss. Yeah, we, we'll watch it at home. We'll exactly. watch it on TV. All right, that's, uh, that is, of course, Tim Nichols, who's the Deputy Sports Editor at the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. So the Tory MP Sir Geoffrey Cox claims he doesn't think he breached MPs' rules despite footage appearing to show him doing external work from his House of Commons office. In a statement, the former Attorney General also revealed the party's chief whip advised him it was appropriate to vote via a proxy from the Caribbean in April. I'm joined by the Daily Mail's Guy Adams, who has done an excellent forensic job 
on Geoffrey Cox QC. He's abroad at the moment, is he? Do we think he's in another Caribbean hotspot? <laughs> Who knows? Um, I, I mean, the, the straight answer is we don't know. Uh, people have been trying to speak to him at his house in Devon. There's mm. no one there. Uh, he could be on holiday. Equally, the court case he's been working on, or he was working on in the Caribbean uh, when the rest of Britain was in lockdown earlier this year. Uh, there is another day of hearings um, later this month, so he could be he- also be headed out there. I'm sure we'll find out pretty soon. Yeah, and um, he pretty good money, isn't it? What was what did he do? 140 hours work and he got how much money? Well, he's a very, very good uh, QC. Yeah. Highly qualified. Yeah. And he charges about £1,000 an hour for his services, which is, I did the maths, it's about 16 quid a minute. Uh, is it not, really? <laughs> not bad going. Very um, nice too. Yeah. And um, I think the question here really is is not uh, a question of whether MPs should have second jobs mm. or all the rest of it. With with, with Mr Cox, or oh, Sir Jeffrey as we should call him, I mean, it's really ha- the sheer amount of extra work he's doing Um, We know exactly how much extra work he's doing because he has to declare his earnings and the number of hours he Mm. was working. Um, On average, um, I've done the maths, on average in the last year, he's done about 30 hours a week of legal work. Um, And when when cases are being heard, that average can creep up to 40 or even 50 Mm. hours a week. And the, the, the question really then becomes... Is he? How on earth is he doing an, an MP's job properly? Yeah. And we don't know. I mean, he's not spoken in the House of Commons for eighteen months, mm. apart from on one day in September. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have voted in person very much in the Commons either. Mm. I think only twice in the last year. And um, pretty, it's pretty pathetic. And if you're a voter in in his constituency, you're entitled to wonder whether or not you'd be better off with a full time MP. Yeah, you certainly would. And of course, he's advertising for a caseworker, paying yeah. quite good salary too, forty thousand. Presumably, to do all the work he's not doing. He's seems to me though guy to be in real trouble over the revelation of this video link of him talking clearly in his house of commons office which I, appears to be his commons office because he refers to the, he disappears for 20 minutes the bell went which we assume is the division bell yes. for a commons vote and that would be a breach of the rules if it's paid advocacy okay, you're, you're quite correct i mean the, the sort of strange thing about the all, all the stuff we've been talking about so far is it's completely legal mps are yeah, allowed to have amazing, second jobs yeah. and they they can do as much or as little work as, as they want what they're not allowed to do provided they declare their mm. accurately declare their income from those jobs which mr cox has failed to do in the past sometimes i mean mm. this isn't his first rodeo no. in terms of controversy over his outside yeah. earnings um but what, what they aren't allowed to do to do is use their common commons facilities for for private work. I mean, we saw that with the Owen Patterson case last yeah. week. He held a number of meetings yeah. uh, with with lo- with the companies he was lobbying for uh, at, at the House of Commons, and he was rightly pinged uh, by the Standards mm. Committee for that. Mr. Cox, yeah, I mean, there's a video of him taking part in a court case, it, it, and and most of the videos he did. There's about ten days of of, of proceedings. He's he's. Uh, been involved in in this this case in in the caribbean um on a, three of the ten we think he was actually there in mm-hmm. the caribbean the other days he dialed in remotely now most of the days he dialed in remotely he was remembered to blur the background which you can right. do on uh teams or zoom or whatever yeah. platform he was using on one day he didn't and those uh, anyone who sort of knows what portcullis house mm. looks like could pretty quickly uh look at the the video of him and say hang on that's his office yeah um and you're right there's a bit where he goes oh hang on a bell's ringing i've got to go and vote sorry folks um and pops off presumably to the commons to to cast a vote now that's straight up against the rules it's not a big breach it's not the sort of thing that that mps usually get suspended for or anything but in this case and and given the uh the the sort of politics of this 
Um, I, I think it's going to be. It, it, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to explain it away. Yeah, and the, it'll be investigated almost certainly by the parliamentary commissioner. Yes, I mean the, there, are, there are other questions flying around. And uh, remember, when he was off, uh, was in the Caribbean. We don't know if he was on his own or whether his wife mm. uh, went with him. That'd be quite interesting to know. Mm. We don't know where he stayed when he was in the Caribbean. But he was there for quite a while, mm. and it was earlier this year when the rest of. Britain was in lockdown. People had to cancel their holidays. They weren't allowed overseas for for anything apart from essential business. And it's pretty shabby. Uh, I think voters will think it's pretty shabby that an MP uh, was was allowed to 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 go off to a sort of uh, sunny place and and yeah. and, uh, and w- to, to line do, his pocket. Well, quite. I mean, it wasn't to, it wasn't to help his. It certainly wasn't to help his constituents no. or, or or the British public. In fact, he's he's a he's sort of um, representing the the other side in a yes. court case uh, involving yeah. the British government. So it's not a great look and. Um, going to be very difficult to explain away. I'd be really interested. I mean, we'll have to get to the bottom of whether the chief whip said yep. this would be okay. Mm. Um, I, I, I think it was actually the deputy chief whip who was his proxy vote. Mm. I mean, so historically, I'm sure I don't know if listeners know this, but you know, MPs have to be in the Commons to mm. vote in usual circumstances. Yeah. But when when COVID came mm. along, the, the 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 Commons quite rightly decided you could uh, vote by proxy. So that MPs could, you know, isolate and and not necessarily travel to London every week and and sort of protect public health. Now, that was designed, as I said, to protect public health. That system was not designed to allow MPs to disappear abroad to line their pockets. Mm. Um, I would be very surprised if the Deputy Chief Whip had said, yeah, that's fine, Geoffrey, off you go. Um, and, and I mean, I think that's a question the Deputy Chief Whip will have to answer. Yeah, and I, I, there will be an investigation. And my my theory is, Guy, that Geoffrey Cox will announce that he's standing down as an MP at the next election because the Tories will not want a by-election in Devon with a, a great atmosphere of sleaze in the air. Yeah, I think that's right. And they've already got one in Owen Patterson's constituency. Yeah. Uh, and um, I mean, it's a it, it's not. Although one thinks of it. De- West Devon is quite a safe seat. Mm. I mean, he he actually stood there, Geoffrey Cox. I think he became an MP in two thousand and five, but mm. he all, he actually stood there in two thousand and and was a couple of thousand votes short of a majority. Yeah. It was a Liberal Democrat mm. seat. I mean, there may have been boundary changes since, but the point I'm making this is not a safe Tory seat. No, no. that's Guy Adams. Read his stuff today. Fascinating stuff, and I know he's um, going back to his desk because he's ploughing on with another top investigation. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app every weekday at 5pm. You can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Listener.